0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to absolutely forbid taking a shit on the Sabbath.
1: Yes, I have never, ever taken a shit on the Sabbath since the day I was born. I somehow was able to clench that sphincter.
0: Don't do it. God hates when you shit on a Sabbath.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, gay men love that you can clench your sphincter, so don't do it. Uh... (laughs)
0: I actually want to cover a few reviews. Um, Number one is Well Worth the Listen, and that's four stars, uh, by Greyhound. And uh, it says, uh, you get the feeling that Leighton cribs off Charlie's notes and would see his GPA drop like a rock if Charlie removed the other side of the room.
1: I didn't realize we got a GPA in a religiosity. That's absolutely true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad that people are starting to understand just how stupid I am.
0: Oh, they're getting it. The latest review is listener number nine and loving it. That's only four stars by Block Party 88. Uh, he says Chuck is obviously the brains of the operation here. Layton, the guffawing, dim-witted Ed McMahon to Chuck's Carson, adds a certain accessible charm to the podcast. Not a lot of intelligence, but charm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow! I got to read these reviews. Actually, <laughs> I don't know. Well as long as i'm compared to something on the johnny carson's show because i used to sneak that as a child i'm okay with that
0: you had to sneak the johnny carson show as a child
1: my parents wouldn't let me watch it they said it was too risqué <laughs> Uh, so there I was, kids six years old or so, and I used to sneak this little black and white TV down into the basement and hide there and watch Johnny Carson.
0: I wonder if the parents realized that that is a ticket to go and sneak that immediately. Like, I couldn't give two shits about watching it, but if my parents said, uh, don't watch that, it's not uh, appropriate for you, I'm there.
1: <laughs> well, that's what it comes down to, is as soon as someone tells me I, I can't do something or I shouldn't do it, I, I have to do it.
0: All right, on to the, uh, the Mims Carter Skunk Dick of the Week.
1: And who's it brought to uh, by this time? Brought to you
0: by the Pakti Memorial Fund. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, everybody, please donate to the Pakti Memorial. He will rise again.
0: Right now, his rotting corpse is just sitting in the corner. I need to find somewhere to bury this guy, or at least buy some deodorant so that uh, I can
1: stand the stench. Uh, you could always do what I did and just get punched in the face so much that you can't smell anymore. <laughs> How much does a can of right Guard cost? <laughs> <laughs> hey, a punch to the face is free. Why aren't you listening to my advice?
0: All right, we have, uh, I'm just going to spoil it for you right now. The Skunk Dick of the Week goes to the Catholic Church. Every one of these articles is, is a Catholic Church. We've got a lot of Catholic news to cover.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in fact, they deserve the skunk dick for at least a few weeks running for just what's coming out in the news here. I mean, you have Pope Benedict being hit with allegations that he was responsible for delaying church actions against a pedophile priest. And uh, I love the response to this, is that they are taking these documents out of context.
0: His his response uh, was, look... Who didn't cover this shit up? Come on! <laughs> Why are you picking on me?
1: Yeah, even the Mormons are covering it up. Come on.
0: <laughs> it's like you get pulled over for speeding, and like everyone was speeding. Everyone's covering up this child abuse. Come on!
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess if the mass majority are doing it, uh, then it's, it's okay. I mean, look at uh, how Hitler did.
0: Well, look. It always comes down to what would Jesus do in this situation, and clearly, Jesus would cover up the uh, child molestation by Peter.
1: Well, Jesus was the head of the Catholic Church, so who's to say he wasn't uh, performing a little uh, pedophilia on his own?
0: Well, that, or he's telling these priests. These priests have a direct line to God, right? Yeah. Um, Hey, go ahead and molest that kid. It's all right. Yeah. I'll forgive ya. That's what I died
1: for. (laughs) That's exactly right. You know, I feel it's against the nature of religion itself for us to believe that these guys should be punished because Jesus has already forgiven them, which is why they are continuing in their priesthood duties.
0: Absolutely correct. What's a couple molested children between priests? (laughs) 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 Look, um, this is a good article, too. Um, There's this uh, bishop... Giacomo Babini, the emeritus bishop of Groseto. Uh, he's quoted as saying that he believed a Zionist attack was behind the criticism of the Catholic Church's uh, <laughs> response, right? His record on tackling yeah. this clerical sex abuse, uh, considering how powerful and refined the criticism is. So apparently, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. Number one... <laughs> jews are behind it but it's okay because only jews are capable of mounting such a polished and refined attack
1: yeah yeah so it's one of those backhanded ones and and i love the actual statement itself dude they do not want want the church they are its natural enemies deep down historically speaking the jews are god killers
0: all right let me put this to rest all you catholics from here to the end of fucking time the jews are not god killers Jesus committed suicide, you fucking idiots. You think anyone could, could could kill the omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-whatever being of the universe? Do you really think they have the power to kill the guy?
1: Well, they, they have the power to shove a crown of thorns on his head, stick him up on a pole, but uh, I doubt they could kill him. He's he, God, after all.
0: He's omni-omni. He's everything. He's omni-everything. There is no way that sticking a couple nails... Through his hands, wrists, and feet is going to kill the guy. Even if you scourge him uh, a bunch of times.
1: It was the spear that killed him. Come on. (laughs) That
0: was after he died. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. He gave up the ghost.
1: Well, that's that's what it says, but we all know that the Jews are God killers, and they must be very mighty and powerful if they are able to kill God.
0: Well, I love it because it's not the Catholic Church's fault for molesting these kids in the first place. It's the Jews yeah. for criticizing them about covering it up.
1: <laughs> well, what I'm wondering is this wasn't this it is the truly Romans who killed the God? This is I truly totally what
0: happens. religion does to morality, right?
1: Yeah, it's yeah. not
0: children being molested. That's the issue here. For God's sakes, it's you can't criticize us. Stop criticizing us. <laughs> it's unfair.
1: Yeah, it's the Jews. Get the Jews.
0: So if we, so what if we covered it up? You Jews are always criticizing us. <laughs> First you <laughs> killed God, and now you're criticizing us.
1: Ridiculous. You know those Jews. What can you do with them except stick them in the back of the bus?
0: Um, uh, you know, um. <laughs> What? That's blacks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, the blacks have moved up to the front of the bus, so we got to stick someone back there.
0: Now, what did you say about Mormons being Jew killers or God killers
1: or what? Oh, Romans, you jackass. The Romans <laughs> are the ones that killed God, not the no, Jews. No, they didn't.
0: Have I mean, you read the New Testament? Pontius Pilate washed his hands of it. It's on the blood of the people, uh, yeah, the Yeah, but Jews. it was the
1: Romans who stuck him up.
0: No, no, no. The the. The Jews brought Jesus to trial. They conducted an illegal nighttime trial. They brought him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate wanted to set him free. Yeah, will you have Barabbas up. or will you have Jesus? They said, crucify Barabbas. Jesus, give us Barabbas. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus' blood be upon us and upon our children. That's right in Matthew. It's clearly the Jews' fault.
1: Well, clearly the Jews' fault, but it's the Romans who enacted the punishment.
0: The Jews can enact the punishment. They're a province of Rome. Exactly. Oh my God! My favorite, <laughs> my favorite article uh, of this whole uh, whole mess of articles is uh, from Hartford, Connecticut. A bill in Connecticut's le- legislature that would remove the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse cases. So this is what they're attempting to do. Um, the 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 current rule in Connecticut is that you have until you're 48 years old. You have 30 years past your your 18th birthday if you're a victim of uh, child sex abuse. So you were abused as a minor. You have until age 48 to file that lawsuit. After that, statute of limitations up. You cannot prosecute the the guy who uh, molested you, assuming he's still alive. Um. So I mean, that's reasonable, isn't it? The guy's yeah, still alive. He should sense. be
1: punished for it, right? Yeah, well, of course, it, he should be punished. I mean, this is something he did which was swept under the rug. Who
0: but... could possibly oppose this bill?
1: Uh, I would say the Catholics. <laughs> I love it.
0: I love it. The legislate. this is a quote. The legislate. this is a letter that was posted on the website of the Connecticut Catholic uh, Public Affairs Conference, which is a public policy and advocacy office of the Connecticut's Catholic bishops. So this is requesting to all the prisoners to contact their legislators in opposition of the bill. So they want to keep the current law, which denies their ability to redress uh, the wrong. It denies their access to the courts, right, and the Catholic Church. Hey, all you parishioners, contact your legislature. We want to fight this. We want to put this (laughs) horrible bill down. And here's the quote. The legislation would undermine the mission of the Catholic Church in Connecticut, threatening our parishes, our schools, and our Catholic charities.
1: Yeah. And they also point out that the proposed change to the law would put all church institutions, including your parish, at risk. If your parish is molesting a bunch of little kids and performing pedophilia (laughs) you should be at risk jackass
0: uh... it is unbelievable to me the law wants to open the court system open your ability to uh... obtain redress for a past wrong remove the statute of limitations and so what it does is it removes a legal technicality allowing a guilty party to go free and not be uh... punished or have to pay for this uh... wrong that he did whether it be 30, 40, 50 years ago. And and there's the Catholic Church. Again, the Catholic Church's mission, if it's undermined in this situation, if it's threatening their parishes, their schools, and the Catholic Charities, that's money. The money is the mission of the Catholic Church. They don't give two shits about children. They don't care about priests molesting children. They care that it threatens their pocketbook. Because these cases uh, have resulted in massive, I, I think, Hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars that they these people have the Catholic churches had to pay in settlements, and so that money is why these uh, Catholic bishops are shaking in their boots about removing the statute of limitations. And well, it makes me were... wonder what they know, what's yeah. in their files from thirty, forty, fifty years ago that they're so terrified.
1: Well, of course, it's more prevalent than what they're letting on, but. My point is, is they should be more worried about people leaving their church in droves because, well, again, religion allows you to compartmentalize quite a few things. And I'm sure a lot of the Catholic uh, parishioners are compartmentalizing this little section, but any intelligent human being who is seeing their church leaders do shit like this should leave their church. I mean, you've got to be shitting me.
0: I love just how bald faced honest they are when the Catholic bishops are telling us that the mission of their church is to molest small children.
1: Well, that's what they go to all of that Catholic school for.
0: Please do not, at any cost, remove the statute of limitations because
1: you're going to undermine our very mission. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking assholes. You're going to allow people to go beyond the letter of silence we have given them.
0: All right, so skunk dick of the week, we don't have to put that in the computer uh, that's going to go to the Catholic Church
1: and everyone within it. <laughs> so wait, 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 wait! How is it everyone in the Catholic Church is now getting a skunk dick award?
0: If they don't leave the Catholic Church based on these news articles, they're all skunk dicks. Every single one of them.
1: That's true. That's very true. Or at least if they aren't up there yelling at the uh, the bishops and uh, you know charging forward, trying to get this forward. Okay, I I can agree. They can be skunk dicks.
0: All right, uh, moving on to the subject of this episode, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, uh, Leighton has done a ton of research, and uh, he'll take the lead on this one.
1: Yeah, actually, I have done no research because... (laughs) I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm stunned. This is my goddamn ass. This is the only time I haven't done any research, (laughs) jackass. (laughs) As some of us have a business we're trying to open up.
0: Right. I'm not busy at all.
1: No, all right. no. Wait, wait, wait. Who had the entire day off today and yesterday?
0: Who sets his own hours?
1: That's very true, but the last couple of weeks I've been putting in 50 hours here at the job as well as putting together a business proposal, so kiss my goddamn ass. Oh,
0: business proposal. That whole keynote oh. presentation was mine.
1: Oh, the keynote. What about the... 3D modeling and animation, what about putting together the entire inventory of everything we have? Both unnecessary. Oh, completely unnecessary, of course. Well, in that case, let's move to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are also unnecessary. Basically,
0: uh, the story of their discovery was that in the spring of 1947, some Bedouins were um, herding a a bunch of sheep and goats. (laughs) One, (laughs) One intrepid goat uh, crawl. This is along the Dead Sea, and they're um, in the area of Qumran. So they're a bunch of cliffs, and one of the, one of these adventurous goats uh, broke off from the herd.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when one goat leaves the flock?
0: Exactly, you got to leave them, the the ninety nine, and follow after the one. Um, so the, it goes into this cave, and the shepherd, being um, a lazy shepherd, doesn't go into the cave. He throws a rock in there to hopefully to scare the goat out. <laughs> And instead of hearing a thunk, he hears a ping, right? So he throws another rock, hears a ping again. Now his curiosity's roused. He goes up there, finds a bunch of earthenware jars, these really tall, thin earthenware jars, inside of which are, are scrolls.
1: Yes, yes, and what, pray tell, would someone do after discovering this great archaeological find?
0: Well, what you do is you grab these scrolls, you um, put them in the air, you know, hang them on a, a tent pole for a couple weeks. Yep. And then when yep. you make your way next into um, Bethlehem, uh, you find a shoe cobbler <laughs> and sell the scrolls <laughs> to him. The guy's apparently. And for how
1: much should you sell three of the scrolls? <laughs> $29.
0: These priceless antiquities. The shoemaker um, named Kando uh, was a part time antiquities dealer. And so eventually uh these scrolls it's a really actually fascinating story if you got the time you should look it up but the scrolls were separated and you know four of them went to this guy three of them went to another one and eventually yeah. the original four were put up for sale in a Wall Street Journal article <laughs> it's unbelievable yeah hey, yeah for this sale. is great Dead Sea Scrolls, unbelievable. Anyway, yeah,
1: 1954, June 1st was the Wall Street Journal. It was, it's, it's great. Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 B.C. are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group.
0: Why the guy doesn't just contact a religious institution or a university, major university directly? I have no idea. He puts it up for sale in the goddamn Wall Street Journal.
1: Well, he's looking for a bidding war. He wants people to go, ooh, wait, we want these biblical texts from way back when. It's a bidding war. It's just like eBay. He's just looking for a bidding war.
0: So the scholars actually um, track down the Bedouins. They lead him to the cave. They figure, hey, if uh, there's one cave with a bunch of documents, there's got to be some other ones. And they actually comb the area for more caves. They found ten more caves that contained documents, including Cave 4, which was like the treasure trove, K-4 alone had more than 500 documents. So some numbers, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls number about 900 documents. So the, the vast majority of these documents are written on parchment. There's a small number on papyrus, and one of them is actually written on copper, just like the brass plates, Layton.
1: Well, see, that in and of itself should prove that Mormonism is true, because here <laughs> you have writings on metal.
0: Of course, it's a scroll, not a book, which wasn't introduced, I think, and, and certainly wasn't in the general population for several hundred more years.
1: Just like you pointed out, one of the great things about these earlier scrolls is there was a photographer who came through. I forget his name. He uh, He took pictures of it, and because these scrolls were so maltreated, that his photographs are actually better for reading and translating than the scrolls are today because they've lost so much of their color in their uh, in the writings.
0: So uh, the first that we're going to go over first of these scrolls is the community rule scroll, and that actually uh, lays out uh, the rules of the community. What what uh, how the community is governed, the initiation, all this stuff about the community. Um, well,
1: the important thing is, did they lay down the rules on rape? No, that was already written down in the Bible. Oh, well, in that case, let's, let's move on.
0: Um, well, I guess the first question is, who wrote this stuff? Who is the Qumran community? Who are these people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls? The uh, consensus, scholarly consensus right now, with, with some vocal exceptions, uh, is the Essenes. And um, just a quick reminder, um, the Essenes are mentioned by Josephus uh, in detail, uh, Philo of Alexandria, and Pliny the Elder, all, I believe, writing in the first century. Josephus mentions three Jewish uh, sects or groups. Uh, one's the Sadducees, which is a temple cult. Two is the Pharisees, who would later become the rabbis. And three is the Essenes. And actually, he spends most of the time, uh, the majority of the text, uh, on these sects talking about the Essenes. I'm not sure why, because he's writing to a Roman audience. Um, but, you know, I guess they're they're kind of unique, and they're, they're certainly the strictest. They may have been the most interesting to a pagan
1: audience. Well, um, they're they're certainly the most interesting I've come across. I mean... <laughs> Just like we pointed out in the beginning, you can't crap on the Sabbath.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we'll get into that. There's a, there's a lot um, a lot of overlap between Josephus' descriptions of the Essenes and the rules that are found in this community scroll. Uh, let me do the introduction first. The, um, in the introduction, the first column, it says the community members are to love all the sons of light each according to his lot in the counsel of God, and to hate all the sons of darkness, each according to his guilt with the vengeance of God. So these uh, Qumran community members, and Qumran, by the way, is the the site that's associated. It's an archaeological site that's nearby the caves. And it's been excavated. And again, the scholarly consensus, with some exceptions, is that the the Qumran community uh, was where these people lived, and the caves were where they uh, had the libraries or eventually hid the scrolls. So when they say that they refer to the Sons of Light, they're talking about themselves. (laughs) This is the Qumran uh, sector, the Qumran community.
1: And there's no surprise there, because every religious cult or religion out there always points to themselves as being the ones of light, the warriors of light. Everybody else is warriors of darkness like the Jews.
0: More interesting, I think, is that they have to hate all the Sons of Darkness. The Sons of Darkness are actually other Jewish sects. These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They couldn't give two shits about the pagans, the Greeks or the Romans or the Egyptians. The Sons of Darkness are the uh, closest ones to them. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees.
1: Uh, If I'm not mistaken, they're pointing out that they're the ones who have fallen away from the true Gospels.
0: Well, listen, this reminds me a lot about... um, my childhood and growing up. This this is the problem did, you have. Did
1: one of them get baptized in a pool is what you're about to say? Well, yes.
0: This is the problem of minimal differences. So these guys hate not the pagans. Those are off their radar. They hate the people that are most close to them. They hate the Pharisees and Sadducees. When I was growing up, I would have thought that the entirety of Mormonism was polygamy and Adam God. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, um, we had entire lessons about how the church had fallen away, how the temple's, you know, useless now because it's not clean, and and how uh, the prophets no longer are prophets. They don't have a direct line to God anymore, and blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of anti-Mormon church. Well, you think about it. The fundamentalists and the modern-day Mormons, mainstream, current Mormons, 98%, I think, is the same. They really differ in yeah. maybe blacks in the priesthood, uh, polygamy, and... Uh, Adam God. I mean, that's pretty much it. Well,
1: and see, the most interesting thing is that in mainstream Mormonism, we didn't really hear about these topics. And in fact, uh, we had a group of fundamentalists uh, living down from us—not you—when we were living up in Rose Canyon. (laughs) And uh, and it was kind of funny because we'd look at them, and the only response my parents would give me is, uh, well, they are following the wrong tract of Mormonism. And that's pretty much the only explanation that was ever given, and Adam-God was never brought up, neither, uh, well, polygamy was brought up as something that came and went. So, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to me that this smaller sect of Mormonism is holding this great grudge against the larger sect, and it seems to me that these Essenes are doing the same thing.
0: Well, it's the exact same thing, because my parents could get, couldn't give two shits about Islam. To them, it's so obviously wrong, it's not even on their radar, right? Other sects yeah. of Christianity, totally wrong. Mormonism, that's where they reserve the um, the majority of their kind of vitriol, and they aimed the majority of their attacks, because they're so close, they have to maximize these tiny differences to say why we're in this sect rather than the other one. And that's what these Essenes are doing.
1: And that's um, probably another reason why Josephus wrote about it, is because they are so... Dead set on pointing out the differences, that they are probably the easiest way to point out the differences in all of these different Jewish traditions.
0: So, uh, all who volunteer for um, God's truth shall bring all their knowledge and their strength and their wealth into the Yahad, which is the community. Um, does that sound familiar? Scientology? <laughs> yeah,
1: there, there's a little bit of that coming around. Yeah. Even the
0: Mormon temple ceremony, right, is the exact yeah. same thing. And yeah. you know, so what happens is this is kind of a communal nature. They pool their resources. Josephus mentioned, and uh, plenty of the other both said that uh, the Essenes pool their wealth and they live communally. Um, the community is not to deviate in the smallest detail from all the words of God. Again, Josephus tells us the Essenes were the strictest observers of the Jewish law, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the halakhic letter. (laughs) Um, The community is not to advance their holy times and not to postpone any of their festivals. This is interesting because you're like, reading this, and you're like, what the hell? What does that mean? What they're talking about is in reference to the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees would fiddle with their calendar to make sure that the Yom Kippur would not fall on the day before or the day after the Sabbath because the Bible says you need to treat Yom Kippur exactly the same. It's like another Sabbath. So you have to fast on it. You can't prepare food. And so if you have Yom Kippur the day before the Sabbath, you can't prepare food or eat for two days. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing at the other end. So what they do is they would fill their calendar, either postpone it, Or put it off or fiddle around with it so it doesn't fall right before or right after. And so this was the Essenes saying to the Pharisees, you guys are are, uh, violating God's word and you're fiddling around with the calendar.
1: We don't do that. Yeah, we're more correct than you guys. And once again, that perfect simile with, uh, with the FLDS.
0: Right, even because, you know, just because polygamy is illegal doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow it, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should follow God's law, not man's law. So you should starve exactly. yourself for a couple of days.
0: All who enter the rule of the Yahad shall be initiated into the covenant before God to do according to all that he has commanded, and not to backslide because of any fear or terror. <laughs> this is what they thought that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done. They they'd backslid from God's word.
1: This is why they're the strictest I don't think they were backsliding from God's word. I think they were backsliding from their own bowels and their stomach. They were hungry.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, There's an initiation, a ceremony where a priest and Levites bless God, and the initiates respond, you know, amen, amen. Josephus, again, lets us know that the Essenes went through initiation rites to get into the community. Now, the next part of this community rule scroll is the tractate of the two spirits, and it introduces a dualism. See if this, uh, again, we'll get into more of this in the War Scroll, but uh, they say that God's created this sort of spirit of light and a spirit of darkness, and he's placed both of these spirits into every individual person.
1: Yeah, which which is something that, while I was reading the, uh, the War Scroll, was just very curious to me, because I'm sitting there thinking to myself, why would God go to such lengths to create such diversity and such challenge, only to let them battle to a standstill, and then, of course step in and kill them. That doesn't make any sense. You're not thinking apocalyptically. Of course not.
0: They, they posit the world is governed by entities who are referred to as the Prince of Light and the Angel of Darkness. Does that remind you of, I don't know, Ahura Mazda, who is the god of good <laughs> and light, and Angra Mainyu, who is the god of evil? I mean, come on, it's exactly it. And remember, by the way, that they had just spent, you know, a couple hundred years before in captivity in Persian Babylon. So they've been yeah. exposed to all this stuff.
1: Yeah, well, we've already pointed out how much of plagiarism they do, so, yeah. Yeah,
0: well, they're, they're clearly swiping it here. Um, it also points out predetermination. This is a point of difference, I think, between uh, the Essenes and the, uh, or the Qumran community and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, I believe, believed in free will but they say from the god of knowledge comes all that is and all that shall be before things come to be he has prepared all their thoughts so that when they do come to be at their appointed times according to his glorious plan they fulfill their action a destiny impossible to change and remember josephus mentions that the essenes denied free will and they they had a doctrine of predestination so uh, you know all of this kind of points especially in this scroll towards these guys being uh, the essenes and and Later on, it says that uh, they should, you know, come together, and together they shall eat, together they shall bless, together they shall advise, so it's this communal nature. Uh, One of the most interesting parts about this, I think, this rule scroll, is it lists punishment. And punishment for the uh, Qumran community was confinement. So I guess they had a little jail, or maybe they shoved them up in the caves. It's probably
1: Um, the sweat box. They'd stick them in the sweat box for a little while. (laughs) So...
0: (laughs) So here are some of the here are some of the reasons why you'd be punished if you were in the Qumran community. Speaking okay. speaking foolishly, uh which Layton does all the time.
1: Yeah, well, what are you talking about? You do it too. We'd both be in the box. Three months confinement. <laughs> Three oh, months. Oh you're kidding me. Wow, that's worse than... Excuse me. That's worse than
0: Interrupting another oh, community member is, while is. speaking. <laughs> that's ten so days. You just days? got 10 days in the box.
1: But I've interrupted you like four times. Does, does it accumulate?
0: Falling asleep during a meeting. <laughs> oh,
1: shit. I would have never left the box.
0: Every Mormon would be in the box for three months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> exposing, and then as soon as they get out, fall asleep again.
0: Exposing one's nakedness in public.
1: Six months. Wow. I flashed a cop. Um, that would have put me in the box. <laughs> Spitting during a
0: meeting will yield one month.
1: Eh, that's most of the young boys. That's
0: almost worth spitting in a meeting.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially at the person running the meeting.
0: Now, one of the things you'll hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that um, some scholars have even posited that they are the earliest group of Christians, right? This is where the the Christians came from. And there are a bunch of overlaps, and maybe we'll do an entire uh, episode on the overlaps between Dead Sea Scrolls and Christianity, but uh, one of the, well, the truth
1: be told, I think we should because uh, we were talking before about how the LDS Church Nibley is pointing out that the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that Mormonism is true. So I think it's actually very important for us to actually do some sort of overlapping.
0: Yeah, we we may do that. Um, one of the differences is that in the New Testament, for example, it's so focused on the Messiah. The word Messiah in the New Testament occurs, I think, over 500 times in the Jeez. entire 900. Documents. The word Messiah occurs, I believe, 32 times. And in one of those occasions is in this community rule scroll where it tells of the coming of the prophet and the messiahs, plural, of Aaron and Israel. So basically what they're positing in this community, right in one of their foundational documents, are two messiahs. One of Israel, the Davidic messiah, the king, and another priestly messiah, a messiah of Aaron. We've never heard of that at all, ever before.
1: They do a a whole lot of that. I mean, even in the War Scroll, where one of the quotes is, Roar of a great multitude and the shout of gods and men. I mean, they're constantly putting plurals in there. It was very interesting to read.
0: Uh, The next thing I want to talk about is ritual purity, impurity, and immersion. This this is kind of the last part of the uh, community rule. And I think it's something that's easily misunderstood if you don't know about Judaism. This ritual purity and impurity uh, discussed, I think, in Leviticus 12 to 15 and Numbers 19 um, tells you kind of that that a person is born in a state of ritual purity, and certain things, certain actions or states can cause you to move into a kind of ritual impurity. Those include childbirth, uh, skin diseases, genital flows, so menstruation for females, and uh, wet dreams for males.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Does blue balls count for that?
0: Not unless you have a nocturnal emission. Con- right. Contact with the dead will do it. Um, this is kind of the most serious type of uh, ritual impurity. And you, you have to do things to move back into a state of ritual purity, right? You yep. need like, you have a waiting period, bathing, ritual Im- immersion, and a sacrifice, and that kind of removes the state of ritual impurity. But remember, the state of purity and impurity really doesn't have anything to do with sin. In Genesis, you're commanded to go forth and multiply, right? So a childbirth sure. is a result of that, following that commandment. That's a good deed. Burying someone is a good deed, right? Um, (laughs) Well, you would think so. Purity and impurity isn't really anything to do with sin. That was an advance made by the Qumran community. They actually, and John the Baptist, you'll see in the New Testament where he preaches gospel of baptism for repentance and forgiveness of sins, right? Instead of just immersion for removing ritual impurity. So um, what you had to do in Qumran was you need to be in a state of purity before you could enter the community (laughs) before you could eat of any food you had to be in a state of ritual
1: purity Um, well I'd be in constant purity I'd be diving into the water just for food alone
0: this is um, the same as you would have to do to enter the temple if you're going to do a sacrifice you have to make sure that you are in a state of ritual purity before you enter the temple Um, and before you eat of pure, pure food so this is the meat from the sacrifices you have to be pure and so this is what they did. They kind of made their entire community into a temple. Uh, you had to be pure inside the entire thing. So that that whole kind of discussion is kind of interesting because I think the common misconception is that this original right of immersion in water was to forgive you of sins and remove sins and transgressions. No, that's not true. That's probably an advance made by the Essenes Carried out by John, who was likely an Essene, right? He was in the desert, like these Qumran people. He's about probably ten kilometers, I think, north of the Qumran community. He was baptizing the River Jordan, um, doing kind of these same things.
1: Yeah, uh, once and, again, it, it it just sounds like something that uh, that Christianity, the mainstream Christianity, has taken out of context, on, out of context, and added to their own little ways. I mean, just like well, you keep said. Keep in
0: mind, if if I'm right, and John was an Essene in nearly every one of the gospels jesus gets baptized by john i think with the exception of the gospel of john <laughs> it just doesn't mention it um, but matthew mark and luke the synoptic gospels i believe all have an account of baptism by john john the baptist so if it started with john and you know you kind of end with an apocalypse john was apocalyptic the essenes are apocalyptic and the the end result the christian communities are apocalyptic Maybe Jesus spent some time with the Essenes. I mean, that's certainly possible. And then instead of enclosing themselves in this community and saying, screw the rest of the world, we're going to remain pure, Jesus' great advance was to say, hey, let's go talk to everyone (laughs) and bring the gospel out,
1: right? Well, I mean, that would definitely explain a lot of Jesus' apocalyptic Uh, speeches, a lot of his talk. Um, I mean, if he's spending time in here, it would make sense that he would be ritually baptized to clear out the purities, and then move forward, and of course that could have been taken the wrong way by those who are not of the regular Essene community.
0: Sure, or um, he got tired of the Essene community and added his own modifications. We're all assuming that, of course, he's a historical individual. He actually existed. This is Um, on the
1: assumption that Jesus existed, so...
0: Well, let's move on to the Damascus document. Damascus document is actually the first Dead Sea Scroll that was found. It was found in 1896, um, 50 years before the rest of the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries. There's this huge cache of documents uh, found in Cairo. Um, Now, Jews can't destroy these holy documents. (laughs) So what they do, uh, they um, have these storerooms called Geniza, I think, and so they stored them all. I think there's probably some way to go through a bunch of rituals so you can finally burn the documents. Um, but this uh, storehouse was found intact. Now, the Dead Sea Scroll corpus, remember, about 900, maybe 930 documents. In this storeroom, 200,000 documents.
1: Holy the most mother. Most massive
0: Christ. manuscript find, I think, ever in history. 200,000 documents. Uh, in this, uh, and they all come about from the Middle Ages, but in one of these was a document um, called the CD Cairo Document or Cairo Damascus that actually the scholars thought that it was uh, done written by an unknown Jewish sect, right? So this copy there are Jewish sects that are copying these this document all the way out into the Middle Ages even though the Essenes themselves probably vanished as a sect shortly after 70 and the temple was
1: destroyed. Well that's and, because the apocalypse came.
0: And right. <laughs> this is in 1896, so um, they were actually the scholars were actually right about this um, because four copies of this document were found in Cave Four of the Qumran Caves, and uh, two more copies, one each, found uh, the f- in fragmentary form in Caves Five and Six. So what happens here is this document, and the title comes from this, um, I think it, it's in the Amos chapter 5, I think, verse 27, where they've completely reinterpreted the, the exile of the Israelites. God <laughs> sends them beyond Damascus as a punishment for their sins, which include worshiping foreign gods and constellations. But these guys kind of rewrite it and reinterpret it and say, look, The constellation isn't a constellation, it's a star. And that star refers to the teacher of righteousness, the one who interprets the Torah who comes to Damascus. So it's actually, they're removed from Israel because Israel's corrupt, placed beyond Damascus, and given this person who interprets the scroll for because they're kind of better than everyone else.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's definitely turning it to their pleasure.
0: (laughs) I like it, I like it. Yeah, Um, yeah. They actually, uh, th- this again goes over very strict um, legal interpretations like the halakhic letter. In, in every instance, they are, you know, you used to think that these, the, the Pharisees, the rabbis, were the strictest, right? They had written down all these rules for everything, how many footsteps you could take on the Sabbath. But it appears that in reference to the Essenes, the, the Pharisees were actually pretty liberal, In every instance, the Essenes were more strict. If the rabbis allowed you to walk 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath, Qumran community only would allow you to walk 1,000 cubits. If the rabbis permitted you to open vessels containing food on the Sabbath, remember, the Bible says you can't prepare food on the Sabbath. The rabbis said, well, that's not preparing food. It's just opening the vessel, right? Yeah, yeah. The Qumran Hmm. says, nope, you can't even uh, open vessels, right? Well, that's...
1: (laughs) This is just a case of uh, more righteous than thou, Art. I mean, it's just a yep. a one-upmanship.
0: The Pharisees allowed a non-Jew to do work for a Jew on the Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Mormons are all about don't go to don't patronize businesses on Sunday because you're forcing people to work on the Sabbath, right? Yep. The Pharisees said that's all right if you wanted to go and drop your shoe off to get it fixed, you know, over the weekend. And this guy was non-Jewish, and he probably fix your shoe on Saturday. You come and pick it up on Sunday or Monday. Um, the, the Pharisees and rabbis said that's okay. Qumran said no. No work at all should be done on the
1: Sabbath. Now, <laughs> well, interestingly it, it makes enough, sense to me. They've already got the, uh, the bit of darkness in them, so why not just use that darkness to your advantage?
0: Interestingly enough, these documents I think in the temple scroll It goes over, Josephus had mentioned That the Essenes don't defecate On the Sabbath, they do not take a shit on the Sabbath And this, these documents tell us Why This I found most fascinating I think of everything um, In Deuteronomy 23 It said that the Israelites need to defecate Outside of the encampment Now keep in mind, they're they're, they're out of Egypt And they're walking through, they're wandering in the wilderness um, They can't take a crap inside the encampment, probably for obvious reasons. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, it's just like if hey. you go camping with your buddies, they start pissing five feet from you, you get Exactly. Angry.
0: Ezekiel, take a shit over there. I'm eating here.
1: <laughs> That's He's probably the outcast who was taking shits right in front of people, and they were getting upset with him.
0: Now, the Qumran community considered all of Jerusalem to be equivalent to the ancient encampment. That means... You can't take a shit inside of Jerusalem. Josephus actually mentions that there's an Essene gate that where the Essenes would leave to take a shit, because <laughs> they can't take a shit inside Jerusalem. So um, he, he indicates its locations west of Jerusalem near a place called Bate Soa, I think, which means literally house of excrement. <laughs> <laughs> they would leave and take a shit outside, it, right? So in the Temple Scroll. I bet you
1: that. On the way out, they probably were holding it for so long they had to get those things with hangers just to get them to flush down whatever they had. I,
0: I guarantee you some of these Essenes are prairie dragging it on the way out.
1: Yes. Yeah. In this <laughs> temple <talking> scroll,
0: about... <laughs> which is the largest scroll that was found, it, it says that latrines have to be removed 3,000 cubits outside of the city to the northwest, right? Jesus. Keep in mind, in the Damascus document, the Qumran community imposed a 1,000-cubit limit to the distance one could walk on a Sabbath. You cannot no. walk to the latrine.
1: <laughs> Therefore,
0: <laughs> you cannot take a shit on a Sabbath.
1: <laughs> well, uh, and, no. and you can't have somebody who's non-Jewish take a shit for you. So there you go. They actually
0: found the latrine of the Qumran community in 2006. <laughs> it was at a distance of 1,100 cubits northwest of the Qumran oh, site. Now, those- that's... That's not the three thousand, but it is a hundred cubits beyond the one thousand cubits that they're limited. So you still couldn't reach. The, you could see. You could see it.
1: So you could move to it, and there's probably a large gathering just sitting there, staring just woefully at it as they wait for the Sabbath to pass away. Just
0: waiting for sundown. That's when the day changed, right? The sun goes down. They're yeah. all running and taking a shit. <laughs> All right, let's 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 move on next to the Halakhic Letter, and then uh, we'll finish off with a war scroll, which is the uh, apocalyptic document. Yes. The Halakhic Letter, um, which is uh, entitled Some Precepts of Torah, was actually written by the leader of the sect, um, who was, I think, called the Teacher of Righteousness, where he refers to 20 points of halakha, which in... Um, Jewish or Hebrew means Jewish law, basically. Now, these are 20 points where the Qumran community differs from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In the letter, the Qumran community is referred to as we, Sadducees are referred to as you, and Pharisees are referred to as they. So it's actually kind of written to the Sadducees and then talks about the Pharisees kind of off to the side. Hmm. Before the publication of the text everyone kind of followed Josephus' lead saying that the the differences between all these sects are mainly theological, doctrinal. You know, belief in angels, immortality of the soul, the free will versus predetermination. After the publication of this letter, it uh, showed that the major issues weren't doctrinal. They were halakhic. They were points of law. There are these tiny little differences. It's,
1: it, Did this they is talk amazing. about eating mermaids? That's what's important here.
0: This is exactly it. This is exactly the type that causes these groups to splinter out. This is clearly, and again, a foundational document. Six copies of it are found in Cave 4. They're all fragmentary, but they were kind of, uh, scholars were able to piece them together. All right, let me give you uh, a list of of some of these differences, all right? One of my favorites is uh, pouring into vessels. You have two vessels, and you've got a larger vessel and a smaller vessel. So you've got, say, this big thing of olive oil or wine that you're going to use for a ritual. Like sacrifice, so you want to pour some of the olive oil into the smaller vessel. So the question is, if the smaller vessel is impure, because <laughs> vessels can be impure just like people,
1: Jesus and, Christ.
0: And you pour the bigger vessel into the smaller vessel. What happens? Is it just the everyone would agree that the contents of the smaller vessel are impure? But what happens to the larger vessel? The it Pharisees. The, the Pharisees would say it's not impure. The Essenes would say that this impurity fucking travels upstream <laughs> against the current into the larger
1: vessel. everything's impure That's just like peeing on an electric fence. it travels upstream
0: <laughs> Imagine the the hardship this would impose on the community. You have this massive earthenware jar of olive oil, which is expensive. And some idiot priest pours it into an impure vessel. Someone catches him. Now the whole thing's impure. You've got to buy an entirely new vessel and an entirely new uh, batch of olive
1: oil. That may explain why they didn't last too long.
0: <laughs> it's, just, it's unbelievable to me. That, but this is one of the massive points of differences. This has made it to the top 20 of these individual points, whether the upper vessel is impure or not. Another <laughs> one is the animal hides. Now, if you want to carry a little bit of olive oil or wine with you to go to Jerusalem and go to the temple and sacrifice, you can't carry that massive earthenware jar, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you need a smaller thing, of you course. You need something
0: smaller and probably an animal hide, right? A skin. It's watertight. So the question is, can you get this from anywhere or do you have to go to the temple and use a skin that's of an animal that's already been sacrificed? The Pharisees said you can get, you do it from anywhere. Doesn't matter. the the Qumran the Essene community said you have to go to from your home to Jerusalem, purchase the animal hide from the temple that's, uh, an animal hide that's already been slaughtered. Go back to your home, pour the olive oil in, and go back to Jerusalem.
1: Please tell me this community was small. No way are there people <laughs> it, out there following this shit.
0: It had to be. It had to be. Here's another issue, and this is to me is hilarious as well. Okay, say you're impure, all right? Layton, you're impure.
1: I am always impure.
0: You've gone through the stuff uh, to um, remove the impurity, but you did it during the daytime. Because okay. the, um, the consensus view uh, was that you know, you're you not pure until the sun goes down, right? Until sundown, the day starts. Yeah, yeah. So if you took a bath during the day, what happens to you between the time you take the bath, or you immerse yourself, and sundown? There's an actually in the Mishnah, the rabbis have an entire tractate devoted to this. The topic, the title of the of the tractate is, "One who is immersed in the daytime."
1: (laughs) Now, this is just smacking of people who have far too much time on their hands.
0: (laughs) They posit a state that exists. Between purity and impurity, all right? This is like a fucking quantum state where you are in a superposition of purity and impurity. One who is in this state, if you touch regular food, it can still be eaten, all right? You don't have to throw it away. If you okay. touch ritual or holy food while you're in this state, that food can't be eaten, but the food itself can't transmit impurity to someone else who touches that food. <laughs> <laughs> So you're telling
1: me if you've got an impure person, they touch food, you touch it after them, you have somehow absorbed their impurity.
0: Correct. But if you're in the state between purity and impurity, before sundown, but you've already done the ritual immersion, you could touch the food, it becomes impure, but uh, it doesn't transmit impurity itself. The Qumran community said that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You don't become pure until the sun goes down.
1: So How again, does anybody keep track of these rules again
0: <laughs> you know they 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 used to think that the the Pharisees or the rabbis were the most strict um not true it's definitely the definitely the Essenes on every single point. it seems like the rabbis took the liberal path, the Essenes took the stricter, and that's why they thought that the temple itself. Uh, had fallen away. It had gone astray, and it was corrupted and polluted and did no good until these people uh, were purged from the temple and the Essenes would take over. That leads us directly into the War Scroll.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now this is actually one of the first seven texts that were found by the Bedouin uh, people in 1947. And it's, uh, what? Bedouin. You're still trying to correct me on that, aren't you? I'm I'm in it. Eternal Optimist. Ah, well, it, it's never going to happen. You should just give up.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was found in Cave 1, one of the first scrolls. There actually had four more fragmentary copies found in Cave 4. So again, probably one of the foundational uh, documents. You know, I, we're, we're not mentioning at all the biblical manuscripts that are in there. And they had, you know, a bunch of copies of Deuteronomy, Exodus, and all this stuff. Um, but these were the actual sectarian Uh, scrolls that these guys wrote and they explain their community.
1: Yeah, and now this one, there were actually 19 columns of text that were preserved and they were missing a few lines at the bottom and so on and so forth. But but yeah, this was actually pretty well preserved for a scroll.
0: Yeah, what it is is a manual of conduct um, for the war between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. Alright, so again, the Sons of Light of the Kuman community, Sons of Darkness, everyone else here, they specifically included the Romans who they called Kitim and the other Jewish sects they disagreed with. They referred to them as the army of Belial or Belial.
1: Yeah, and I, I love that I mean in the very first column, everybody's always going to Egypt. Once again, people love Egypt, and the statement is, then, after the battle, they shall go up from that place, and the king of the Katim shall enter into Egypt. Everybody loves Egypt. why not?
0: Why well, would you go to egypt? i'd go to Egypt
1: so would I, but back then they were the source of all the food, so you know that's why the Romans took them
0: so this is this is apocalyptic in nature, so this this battle is the final battle that will uh, mark the end of days the the end of the time beforehand and it will usher in the time of God and the kingdom of God and all that stuff right you're into the eschaton yeah. the, the the last time all evil is going to be destroyed this is the apocalyptic nature of it uh, at the appointed time and God's rule is established now here's a point of contact between Christianity and the Dead Sea scrolls the phrase sons of light actually occurs twice in the New Testament once in John twelve thirty-eight and again in 1 Thessalonians five five. It's a kind of a unique phrase, um, not found a whole lot of other places. So again, the question is, are these kind of um it was Christianity maybe a spin off sect of the Essenes?
1: It it very well could have been. I mean, we, we just talked about the uh the cleansing which turned into baptism, so
0: Right. I mean it's a possibility, it's an intriguing possibility. The war scroll itself is divided into three components. The the introduction in column one the text begins the sons of Levi Judah and Benjamin the exiles in the desert who will return from the desert of the peoples to camp in the desert of Jerusalem and after the battle they will go up from there so this is talking about the Qumran community kinda of moving into Jerusalem and having that
1: final battle the- yeah now the one of the great comments that I find that uh, on the day when the Katim fall they shall be a battle and a horrible carnage before the God of Israel for it is a day appointed by him from ancient times as a battle of annihilation for the sons of darkness. So once again, I pointed out earlier that God put light and dark in in everybody, and then he just wanted to slaughter all the darkness.
0: Right. And keep in mind also that both sides have angels fighting with them, right? I guess angels on the side of lightness and demons on the
1: side of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, God is a big kid up there with a bunch of toy soldiers throwing them at right. each other.
0: Why does he even bother? Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and, like, uh, destroy everyone?
1: Yeah, well, he, he could kill all the firstborn of Egypt. Why didn't he just snap his yeah. fingers and do the same thing?
0: Why is there a battle at all? What the hell? Anyway, the, the largest chunk, actually, uh, columns 2 through 14, lays out the general rules for the battle. They give uh, just these... Massively detailed descriptions of pretty much everything trumpets right. standards weaponry movements of the troops they lay out the duties of the priests and the Levites um, Who are going to accompany the troops into battle just like you know they did in in joshua and, and uh, in The battles uh, before
1: that yeah. um, the most amazing thing to me is with all of these rules how did they actually get around to fighting? I mean listen to this on the trumpets of the slain they shall write the hand of the might of God in battle so as to bring down all the slain because of unfaithfulness on the trumpets of ambush they shall write mysteries of God to wipe out wickedness on the trumpets of pursuit they shall write God has struck all sons of darkness he shall not abate his anger until they are annihilated and it just goes on and on and on so they have to write these down on all the trumpets how do they ever get around to fighting
0: it, it's it's very interesting because given that the fact that they have battle standards their their weaponry their troop movements it's based on the roman legion uh, so as as isolated as these people are they are still quite aware of not only rome itself but the roman tactics of battle and they base their kind of apocalyptic final battle not on god's perfect battle system but they base it on Roman. They could have based it on you know the Greek phalanx or the Egyptian um, chariots and, and their arrangement in battle, but no, the, it's based on the, the Roman legion. They're going to be carrying battle standards and, and grouping themselves into essentially <laughs> Roman legions of, of Hebrews.
1: Well, of course, that's because the Romans were in power at that time. They were seen as the most powerful empire. So, of course, they're going to base that on those who have with, withstood the fight of time. Sure, but keep in
0: mind that Those guys are the Sons of Darkness, so they're actually basing their own battle
1: tactics and strategy uh, on the army of Belial. Well, you gotta do what you gotta do to win, even if that means uh, encompassing the enemy's war strategies.
0: So the last five columns are a prophetic description of the final battle. Um, This is all apocalyptic uh, stuff. They say the purpose of God is eternal redemption uh Even though of course he's just beating the shit out of everybody here <laughs> uh so he, you know God destroys all of the nations of wickedness and uh wraps it up you know it's clearly apocalyptic it it's it shows how Jews see time as linear as opposed to say the Mayans who see time as cyclical, a series of cycles
1: yeah
0: uh you got a beginning, you got a middle and you got an end of days. Um, And this clearly is going to happen now. uh, This, again, is borrowed from Zoroastrianism, clearly filtered uh, into Judaism through the uh, Babylonian captivity. And uh, again here, in this war scroll, Messiah is plural. Uh, By the hand of your anointed ones, right? By the hand of your messiahs those who discern testimonies, you have told us the end times of the battles of your hands to fight against your enemies to bring down the troops of Belial." So again, even though um, the the term Messiah is used, it's not used in the same sense as uh, Christianity is. No. There's definitely differences
1: here. Yeah, and and as I pointed out earlier, they also use plural forms of God. So they say, the gods are up there saying this, the gods are enjoying this. So I mean, it's it's actually very interesting the differences in thought they have there and well probably my favorite part of the war scroll actually comes from the address of the chief chief priest and he says do not be afraid nor faint-hearted do not tremble nor be terrified because of them for your god goes with you to fight for you against your enemies well if god is fighting for them why do they have to fight at all
0: Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) what's the point what's the point
0: Um, We probably ought to end this by giving kind of an overview of uh, the the current scholarly thought on what happened to this community. Uh, It formed, they tell you, it formed 390 years after the the destruction of the first temple. That would place the community, the first temple was uh, destroyed in 586 BCE. That placed the community at around 196. Uh, Certainly it was in place by the time of the Maccabean Revolt uh, in the 150s. And and some scholars think, we haven't gotten into the teacher of righteousness or the wicked priest, some scholars think that the wicked priest was actually a Maccabee, uh, Jonathan, who um, a lot of Jews at the time think usurped the priestly role. So that may have caught, they may be referring to Jonathan as the wicked priest there, uh, and he may have kicked out. This uh, Essene, who was a Sadducee probably at the time, uh, and and prompted this guy to to go into the desert and uh, start this community aimed at the the Sadducees and the Pharisees to get rid of them because he see the saw them as um, corrupt. Well, so that, of
1: course. That, I mean, it also carries with it the grudge that he was the one that was exiled. So.
0: Sure, right. And, and the attempt to turn the exile
1: into a positive thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So to say, is, I wasn't exiled. I left because you weren't righteous enough.
0: Yeah, God removed us from your... Um, company so that we could could remain pure. I mean, that's the idea. This is all speculation because nowhere in the scroll does it locate or pinpoint any proper name as either the wicked priest or the teacher of righteousness, which has allowed a lot of people to say, you know, uh, James the Just was the teacher of righteousness. They're about 150 years off, but that would make Paul the wicked priest, or Jesus was the teacher of righteousness, or Jesus was the wicked priest. All of these things have been uh, surmised by scholars, but I think uh, I think that Jonathan, with the, the the pinpointing it to maybe the the Maccabean revolt as the beginning of the Qumran community, and pinpointing the wicked priests, as Jonathan's probably. We can get more into detail of that later, but
1: well, I, I mean, to point that out. You got to admit they did it absolutely right by being completely vague with the things that they stated, because then it allows for interpretation everywhere, and that's something we've pointed out here time and time again. If you're going to do something with religion, if you're going to prophesy, don't be specific. Be vague.
0: It's a bit odd, I think. Can you imagine the New Testament referring to Jesus not as Jesus, but as the guy who taught really good things?
1: Yeah, makes sense to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Peter as you know, just, you know, apostle number one. I mean, it's it's weird. It's strange not to pinpoint this stuff, but but, you know, I'm sure they had their reason. Now... Uh, remember this stuff goes on the the Essenes are still in place in the 1st century CE otherwise Pliny the Elder who personally visited and and Josephus who spent some time with them couldn't have written about them they did so they are at least in place in the 50s and 60s we lose them after the 70s because what happens is that the Zealots lead a rebellion in 66 the common era that leads to the fall of Jerusalem um, uh, and the destruction of the temple in 70 CE Actually, if you move down, then um, the fall of the final holdout of the Zealots was Masada, and that fell in 73 CE. And between Jerusalem and Masada is the Dead Sea community of the Qumran. So that, 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 if they, if some scholars think that they may have put up these scrolls into the caves and went into Jerusalem just as the war, the war scroll, Predicts right. Here's the end time battle. This is the final battle between the sons of light and darkness. They and may if you have
1: get people believing that they will march against anything.
0: Absolutely, they may well have done that. Uh, it's also possible that they didn't, but they knew very well the Romans had defeated Jerusalem and they were marching on them right now. And they abandoned the community uh, and maybe took up with Masada when they uh, fell finally in 73, or they were defeated uh, during the march. Um, but we kind of lose them in that time and certainly by the second revolt, which was led by Simeon Bar Kokhba in uh, 132 to 135, the Essenes were no longer uh, a sect. So that's kind of uh, what scholars typically think happened to this community, both at the beginning and the end. And in the in the middle, uh, they were a kind of a thriving desert community, They had buildings. They had a scriptorium where they would write things. Um, They had had uh,
1: shitters 1,100 cubits (laughs) out of town. Yeah.
0: And in the Copper Scroll, and there's some debate whether that's actually a Dead Sea Scroll or not, in the Copper Scroll, it leads to a massive amount of treasure, right? We're talking uh, something like 200 talents worth of gold and silver, which would make these Qumrans um, wealthier than... uh, I think the entirety of Judea
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that would make sense considering they were constantly throwing away oil because it was impure poured into a smaller container
0: so some of the the idea was that uh, maybe the copper scroll didn't belong to the the Dead Sea Scroll community the language is a little different Um, but maybe they were doing that maybe they were uh, hoarding all their wealth to build a new temple or uh, maybe it was uh, for the uh, revolt maybe the zealots Hid the copper scroll until uh, they had use of the funds to revolt. Maybe that money was used to to, to
1: raise the revolution. The, yeah, the yeah.
0: revolution. But anyway, people have looked for all the treasure. You know, the copper scroll is like a treasure map, uh, and no one's ever found it. So you know, anyone of you want to read that copper scroll, travel to uh, Israel, and you'd find a massive amount of
1: uh, gold and silver. Because I'm sure it's still out there and that they didn't use it to march against everybody. Piece of cake. Yeah.
0: All right. So that's uh, um, a very, very brief overview of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like I said, there's a lot of fodder here to discuss. I'd love to talk about Hugh Nibley's uh, and and other Mormon scholars because they love the topic of the Dead Sea Scrolls. As long as you talk about generalities, if you get into specifics, they get in trouble. So they like to keep it in general.
1: And, of course, as has been proven with the LDS community, they stay to generalities and tell you not to dig further.
0: Right. Don't look into the specifics. If you zoom out far enough, you can find stuff that supports Mormonism, but you have to zoom out pretty goddamn far. I'd like to talk about that, and I'd like to talk about the intersection between Christianity and the Dead Sea Scroll community, the Qumran community, the Essenes.
1: Well, I'm sure these are coming in the future and uh, will be researched. All right. Sounds
0: good. Uh, Any topic for next week?
1: Do we ever know what topic's coming out next week? Not a clue. That's right. See you then.